break 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 As the war in Ethiopia escalates, there's a tsunami of media reports demonizing the Ethiopian government, accusing them of committing every atrocity imaginable. Meanwhile, the TPLF, which started this war and is openly advocating for a violent coup against a democratically elected government as they advance towards the capital, have been celebrated as noble rebels and their atrocities whitewashed or ignored entirely. Why is the coverage of this war so one-sided? What's really happening on the ground? And how does it compare to the narrative being presented in U.S. media? Here to discuss this is Jamal Countess, a U.S.-based photojournalist who was formerly based in Ethiopia and has reported from around the country since the war started. Jamal, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for for joining me to discuss this. I just want to give a quick reminder to our viewers. You can listen to every episode of my show, Dispatches, anywhere you get podcasts. And to our listeners, you can watch every episode of Dispatches on the Breakthrough News YouTube channel. Be sure to hit the subscribe button to get notifications. And you can support all of our great content here at Breakthrough News by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Now, Jamal, with that out of the way, Mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, a good way to start uh, you know, would be maybe to start with how this war started. And, you know, the U.S. media, as as you know, has framed it as a war specifically in Tigray uh, that is being conducted by an ex- inexplicably violent government that's fueled by ethnic hatred. But it's much more complicated than that. You've been there since the beginning. You've been both around Tigray as well as Afar and Hamahara, um, all of which have endured war and suffering. So, Can you give our listeners and viewers an idea based on your interactions with people around the country and what you've seen from your perspective? What is this war about? This war is about the TPLF wanting to return to power. Uh, This war is about um, the fact that they were pushed to the sidelines um, by an overwhelming majority of Ethiopian voices who wanted to not have them rule over them anymore after 27 years of authoritarian and brutally oppressive rule. So um, Abiy Ahmed was put into power after they were pushed out of power in 2018. And in essence, they have not been happy with that ever since. Um, The TPLF looted the country of a vast amount of wealth. Uh, Conservative estimates were 30 billion. I've heard estimates um, up to 100 billion recently uh, from various sources. Uh, so they enjoyed power. They enjoyed a number of things. They also incorporated a a quasi apartheid, uh, system in terms of, um, the, the, how can I say the, the social fabric of the country. So, um, it was pro Tigray, Tigrayans first, TPLF enjoyed, um, um, how can I say dominance in the country for that, the 27 years they were in power. And, you know, I I actually heard you mention this in another interview that you did uh, that I thought was really interesting, because obviously we know that the TPLF uh, initiated this war with their attack on Ethiopian Northern Command Base. I didn't realize just how serious that attack was. Can you give us an idea of the significance of that attack and like how many people were killed? 
Okay, so um, I'd been uh, begging the Ethiopian government for accurate numbers, and then I was made to realize, well, this is wartime, and it's an ongoing conflict, so I'm not going to get specifics uh, or the interviews that I requested until things reach a different place. But on the night of November 3rd, 2020, um, TPLF commandos and regular cadres began to attack people that they had served long for a long period of time um, in their sleep at night. I do believe I saw reports that the attack began at like 10, 10 o'clock that night on November 3rd and continued for the next uh, 24 hours. During those attacks, they, from what I was told, slaughtered, murdered about 6,000 soldiers. Um, they have committed within those, those attacks, they committed atrocities. Uh, there are reports, um, and actual survivors, female soldiers who had their breasts cut off. Um, I heard that when they were forced to walk, um, out of Tigray back to Amhara, they were playing games like running them over with tanks and all kinds of things. So, you know, these are the things that I've been waiting for the Ethiopian government to grant me access to as a journalist to have these types of interviews and we just have to wait for a, a different uh, phase of the war for me to conduct those interviews. But um, some of the things that I, that you actually, as a journalist traveling to my cadre in Humera can see, you pass by two of the bases that were attacked during this attack on five different bases. Um, I think everybody has seen the picture of the, the infamous picture of the tank on the road that was destroyed um, that was one of two tanks that you passed by on the road to Maikadra um, that were stolen from um, the Northern Command and directed towards uh, two bases in that region. Um, so I, I think that what needs to be understood is that with this attack on these five bases, uh, the ethnic cleansing operation in Walkite also began. So you have... Um, the situation in my cadre, the massacre that's been so uh, misreported and has had so much propaganda spread about it. Uh, basically, um, when they planned these attacks, they planned for a full-out takeover of the country. It was a coup. Um, but with that coup comes the ethnic cleansing of Amhara people from the region of Walkite, which is basically North Gunder. Um Walkite has pretty much been um, a part of uh, Amhara lands for almost a thousand years. Um, historians and historical documents can prove that. With the 1991 um, uh, constitution instituted by the TPLF, they seized Walkite because uh, Walkite is a, a resource-rich region. Um, and it's also a major hub of um, finance and trade. It's right there next to the Sudanese border. And Humera itself is, is a major financial hub. Uh, so they seized that in 1991, have claimed, at, you know, oh, well, most of these people who speak to Grinya uh, prove that it's, it's a region uh, that belongs to Tigray. The fact is, because it's a financial hub and a major trade hub, people were multilingual. So they were Amhara people who spoke to Grinya. What they also don't report is that they spoke Arabic. There were there was a sizable uh, Hebrew Jewish population there, and it was just basically like a, a mecca for business. So they seized Humera as part of seizing Walkite, um, and my cadres in there as well. So um, 
the attacks on the bases began and the ethnic cleansing began on the third and fourth also with the murder of uh, day laborers culminating in the all-out attacks on my cadre and humera on um the ninth and tenth so this was wow. all a part of one big major operation and you're saying, I mean, the, the way that you're framing it is like it was a coup from the beginning, an attempted coup, I should say, from the beginning and a very violent one at that um, mm -hmm. is just interesting when you compare to the media bias. I want to get into some of like the specifics of, you know, what you've seen, maybe specific incidences and in, 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 in specific stories that maybe the media has gotten wrong. But first, I think it's important to talk a little bit about why the media might be getting some of this wrong. And I'm talking about the people who are visiting Ethiopia. And you've actually talked about this before, the role of fixers, specifically in Tigray. Mm -hmm. um, you've talked about how the TPLF has played a, a role influencing the narrative of international reporters through fixers. And just to, as an aside, you know, I, I report largely from the Middle East, uh, specifically Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. And I've seen a similar thing at play where fixers, because people from outside international reporters don't typically know the language, they don't know the, the you know where to go, they have to rely on fixers. And who your fixer is, it is crucial to how you end up um, framing your story. They basically have control completely over what you see, how you see it, what you understand. So can you talk a little bit about how that plays out into gray? Okay, so, um when in speaking to other journalists, I discovered that uh, people came to Ethiopia with a bias already. Mm -hmm. um, the, the narrative that people are going by is, you know, this heroic rebel group is resisting this uh, onslaught from the Ethiopian government, blah, blah, blah. Um, and nobody has done the actual research and knows the actual background of the TPLF or Ethiopia for the past 30 years. Uh, they don't really understand what dynamics were at play. And um, um, it, it's just kind of embarrassing, actually. Um, I'm a photojournalist. Um, you know, I've studied my trade. I've, I've gone through the, the, the training and the schooling. Um, but there are people who have had better training and schooling and who actually graduated from school to journalism. Um, and they were making the most amateur of mistakes in terms of this. Um, nobody came to hear from the Ethiopian government. They went straight to Tigray. They bypassed the Ethiopian government. They refused to do balanced stories. Um, the network of fixers uh, um, was accessed, I think, before people even got to Ethiopia. So it was like a word of mouth. Hey, use, you know, use Samson. Um, when you get to Tigray or when you get to Addis, you call Samson. And when you get to Tigray, you know, Samson will pick you up. And Samson is part of a group of fixers who are, you know, more than likely more or less TPLF intelligentsia. Um, so you have these fixers who basically, um, agree way ahead of time on where they're going to take you, what they want you to see and what narratives they're going to tell you. Um, where we were staying at the Northern Star Hotel, like most of the journalists who were in McKelly when I was there, um, we um, were met or greeted with a lobby full of people. Um, now granted, because of the circumstances and the, um, the curfew and all of these kind of things, everybody clusters around hotels to use the Wi-Fi. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, um, I actually went to another hotel to use Wi-Fi because my Wi-Fi went down for a minute. And I couldn't transmit pictures. So um, all of these hotels have people in them using the Wi-Fi. Um, the Northern Star Hotel was no exception. But there was a willingness for people to engage you in conversation to tell you stories. And these stories all had the same familiar tone. And they repeated some of the same facts, um, give or take, you know, this town was destroyed by fire, this town was destroyed by white phosphorus. 500 homes were destroyed, 600 homes were destroyed. Um, But they all agreed on these narratives. Um, I engaged one fixer in particular, who um, I just had a heart to heart conversation with about politics. And he was dead set on the storyline, you know, we are surrounded by enemies. The U.S. and Europe will back us, will help us survive this. And, you know, we just need to succeed. Um, he even went as far to tell me that he took his team. He took, sorry, he took France 24 uh, to the center of McKelly to interview a group of boys who happened to be playing uh, games. And they all talked about succession. Um, and... You know, I, I think that there are a few journalists who have come to Ethiopia who've kind of done the work, but but not enough, not enough. Um, there are also moves that point to the fact that um, a lot of these people are not just influenced by the TPLF, but are in bed with the TPLF and who are being fed directly by Gatachu Reda and other TPLF sources for their information. And this comes from you know, this this network that was set up way beforehand, many years ago by Gatachi Reda and Simone Berakat, um, that basically created a ring of journalists that they would use, the TPLF would use to disseminate their information. And um, it also involved um, utilizing the top 25 uh, NGOs and humanitarian aid organizations in Ethiopia and um creating rings of information or information dissemination. Wow. That's actually very smart, I guess, uh, in this situation for them. But it's been quite shocking to see the disparity between what someone like yourself is saying versus what almost like the entire uh, Western media apparatus. Yeah. Yeah. The entire Western, I mean, it's like there's no dis- there's no difference and they all just kind of cover the same stories and repeat the same topics. And one thing I've noticed that's quite striking, as I'm sure you have, is they're, they've been obsessively focused on Tigray to the detriment of like everywhere else. So Tigray is the epicenter of this war. And I know it is, you know, that's where, you know, the war is bad there. I'm not denying that. But like left out of that is the fact that there's these TPLF offensives in Amhara and Afar. So can you talk a little bit about the suffering there that you've witnessed as a result of these TPLF offensives and maybe walk us through some specific places that you've been recently as this war has escalated against these uh, areas. Okay. Um, so I went, um, I've, I've been to, I think about six different IDP camps. Uh, the thing about that that I should mention is that there are IDPs outside of these camps. So IDPs for people who don't know are internally displaced people. Um, so I've been to um, two camps in North Gondor, actually, yeah, two camps in North Gondor, one in Gondor, two in Gondor proper, and then um, Kombucha and uh, Desi, uh, which are to the east. But um, Debark, I went to Chenna, which is the site of a massacre that killed 200 and 
seven um, Amhara people um, during a, which was initiated during a, um, a mass on a holy day celebration at a church, Chana Um I've been to Zanzilima, I've been to Ennebet. Um, Bahardar itself is now officially like a large IDP camp. It's a major city in the Amhara region next to Lake Tana or on Lake Tana. Um, and actually a lot of IDPs from Lalibela in particular have come to Bahardar because of its proximity uh, to Lalibela. Um, the, the suffering in a lot of the uh, established camps uh, is kind of unparalleled. Um, lack of plumbing, lack of uh, supplies, um, foodstuffs coming mainly from donations from local charities, um, people with uh, untreated trauma. I mean, that, that's something that's really downplayed is the amount of uh, trauma and um, suffering that exists within uh, these uh, displaced people's communities. So, um, you know, we take for granted healthcare, you know, uh, mental health care. Um, it's non-existent there. It's non-existent. And you have people who have seen death, people who've seen suffering, people who've been uprooted from their homes, um, sometimes in the middle of the night or just uh, in rapid fashion, who have had to leave their homes and who uh, are traumatized behind that. Um, they don't know where they're going to return to. They're people who have not seen their loved ones in several months because they got separated. Uh, so um, these camps um, are overcrowded. They are primarily repurposed schools or industrial sites, some of which are never meant for human occupation. I mean, like overnight kind of things. Um, so you're talking about a camp at like Zanzalima, which uh, was an industrial park for, um, for retail. For, for businesses and they're just basically like huge warehouses um, and there's probably like officially like maybe 10 bathrooms for this huge complex um, but because you now have 5,000 plus IDPs there they dug trenches or they dug a trench and uh, built 40 stalls over this trench and these 40 stalls now serve as the bathrooms for 5,000 plus people um, they're not free-flowing um, plumbing kind of trenches. It's just like stagnant feces uh, in a trench that people have to use day in and day out. Um, you know, uh, Nairobi fly, which was just common in Bahardar because of the temperature and the location, which some people are familiar with um, and as being a problem in that region during certain months, um, made for a lot of headaches for a lot of people, especially the, the children, the younger people who um, didn't realize what they were dealing with. And these, uh, these Nairobi flies were wreaking havoc um, on, on young people and adults alike. Um, then it's just a kind of general despair. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, foodstuffs are lacking. Um, hygiene, access to hygiene, access to running water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. And I, I recall you noting that, um, I think that you had tweeted about this, but there was a few camps that, a few IDP camps that you weren't able to access because of um, people inside of them who didn't want a certain narrative to get out. I don't know if I have that wrong, but is there, is it difficult to access the ID camp, IDP camps you want because of various players in this war? Um, well, I'll say this, uh, you can access the IDP camps, um, especially if you arrange, uh, 
ahead of time. Now, mm-hmm. now the decision, now that this particular story we're going to discuss is kind of more open and exposed, I think you you will have an easier time accessing it. Um, by and large, I didn't have problems because there's a certain protocol that I utilize to visit these camps, and it's all about you know complete respect and um, um, concern for the people that I want to engage and interview. Um, but the TPLF has infiltrated large numbers of IDP camps and they've infiltrated these camps um, for the sole purpose of um, quieting, silencing people um, in Kombucha and Dese, more so in Dese, these uh, IDP camps were infiltrated and um, people were having their families threatened. So a lot of the IDPs in, in Dese um, were a little hesitant to talk because it's like the TPLF were threatening their families back in Ryakobo in these regions that are now occupied saying, if you talk, we'll kill your families. You know, we will take it out on them. Um, but, um, as we saw with the recent offenses, when, uh, when Desi fell, uh, Desi fell because there were TPLF operatives who had been in, uh, the region for a long time, people who had lived there to Grands, um, but who were aligned with the TPLF and who had secretly armed themselves and who in a Tet Offensive style maneuver decided that, um, okay, the TPLF is nearby, we're going to strike out and kill Amhara. So uh, a lot of people were caught off guard by the sleepers, as I call them, um, Mm -hmm. who came out of the shadows and basically assisted the TPLF when they came close to or arrived in uh, Desi. Um, Yeah. The media, the media, I just want to note the media, I mean, as you've seen, like has made a really big deal about the fact that the government in Addis is basically like uh, has this crackdown that's targeting ethnic Tigrayans that they believe might be uh, sympathizers with the TPLF. And this is kind of not to excuse that, but this is essentially what's missing from that coverage is what you're talking about. And it reminds me actually a lot of the Middle East with ISIS. Uh, when there would be sleeper cells in various areas that would collaborate with ISIS when they would come and take over an area. Mm-hmm. And what you have here that you're describing is ethnic Tigrayans uh, in these particular places where the TPLF has taken over that are a part of the TPLF and essentially help them um, take over the area uh, and turn on their neighbors, which is mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. Um so this doesn't surprise me at all, but yeah, can you, I guess, discuss your thoughts on all of that, which you were already getting into? I just wanted to give people, I guess, some background. You know, when I lived in, uh, well, when we lived in Addis, um, I um, lived in Addis during the last years of the TPLF and in the first years of Abby's uh, come to power, Abby's power. Um, and um, when Abi came to power, he graciously said, you know what, you know, I'm not going to pursue you as in the TPLF um, leaders. I'm not going to put you in jail. We know what you've done to this country. Just go back to Tigray and, and live your lives. You know, that's essentially what he said. And um, what's missing from the media narrative is his exchanges with the TPLF prior to this conflict. Um, what's also missing from the media narratives are these ridiculous incidences that we witnessed in Addis when, when the TPLF was going back to McKelly peacefully, you know, the police were intercepting tanker trucks full of money. I mean, like oil tanker trucks full of money. And I don't mean Whoa. single cab. I mean like double cab tanker trucks full of Ethiopian burr and American dollars. Even in, I, I live in an apartment complex in Arat Kilo and, 
Um, I had a lot of ethnic Tigrayans as my neighbors, you know, no problems, really kind people. Uh, my landlord was actually ethnic Tigrayan, and he was, like I've said before, a very, very sweet man. Um, but um, w- a couple weeks after uh, we had left um, Addis Ababa uh, to come back to the States, they found an industrial pallet full of money under a bridge in my neighborhood. Um, they were always intercepting cars full of money. There were all kinds of things going back to Tigray. Um, so I say that to say that, um, flat, you know, fast forward to now, um, the media has failed to report the fact that, uh, they closed down a lot of hotels in Addis Ababa. And a lot of these hotels were found to be funneling money back to the TPLF. Um, there was one hotel in particular um, that was found to have a large cache of weapons, like, you know, like rooms full of Kalashnikovs, um, waiting for the, the time when these weapons would be utilized to overthrow the government. Um, the media is not reporting stories like this. The media is not reporting these local stories, um, be- A, because they're not interested. It doesn't feed their narrative. But um, B, they just don't care to. You know, um, and it's like whether it's a, the language barrier, which is something else that needs to be discussed um, or whatever. It's like these are little bits of the story that are crucial to people understanding that you have armed active sleepers throughout the country. And these these moves are basically made to protect themselves, to protect the Ethiopian people. Yeah, that's like a huge story to ignore. And then another thing that has been pretty wild is, you know, we've heard these accusations of the TPLF using child soldiers. And it was really shocking when the New York Times published that photo story that I know you're aware of, where it was clearly like it was clearly children holding weapons and they referred to them as a ragtag TPLF rebel force. So in your time in Ethiopia covering this conflict, have you seen any evidence of the use of child soldiers? I haven't seen the I haven't seen firsthand to gray and child soldiers. What I did see when I went to an IDP camp at Ennebet was uh, young Amhara boys. Uh, I interviewed a child who was 10 years old. Um, and then all of a sudden there was this group of 10 to 14 year olds and then 10 to 16 year olds who had left Sokota, one of the towns that the TPLF invaded because they wanted to escape forced conscription. Um, so what was happening is the TPLF was taking young Amhara boys, um, basically kidnapping them, giving them minimal training, and forcing them to walk out in front of their advancing troops as human shields. Excuse me. Some holding weapons, fake weapons, some carrying nothing at all. Um, one of the things that uh, is downplayed, again, by the Western media, as they have sought to demonize the Amhara and the Amhara troops and the Amhara special forces and the ENDF. Um, the story that's never been told is that initially the ENDF suffered horrific losses because they refused to fire on children. They saw and recognized young children. They did not want to fire on children. Many of these people are of the Orthodox faith and did not believe in killing children. To them, killing children is a great sin. Um, so what happens is you see a child in the battlefield and you stutter, you freeze, and then the advancing troops behind those children pick you off. So uh, it was, a, it was a, a psychological move as well. 
um, using child soldiers. But um, I've not seen myself to gray in child soldiers. I've just seen the child soldiers on the Amhar side or the attempted or the, the escapees who uh, refused um, and who left before they could be conscripted. Jesus. So you're talking actually what's wor- you're, what you're saying is actually worse than just using child soldiers. It's using children as human shields. Uh, yeah. No question. But, you know, you mentioned the issue of you keep going back to the issue of like bigotry towards the Amhara. And it sounds like what you're saying is the the Western press is actually spreading that kind of bigotry in their own reporting because they're getting their sort of talking points from the TPLF activists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And they don't even know what an Amhara is, to be honest with you. Um, I've seen, um, you know, I I live here in D.C. and I've seen people even talk about, oh, these brutal Amhara militia, these Amhara this, Amhara that. And and it's just really nauseating because I'm just like, can you spell Amhara? You know? (laughs) And that goes back to the, sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, no. I'll I'll just ramble on about that. It's just deeply (laughs) infuriating, you know? Understandably so. And I guess that goes back to the issue you mentioned, too, of perhaps, you know, this goes back to sort of the parachute journalism, right? Mm -hmm. Where people who've never covered an area of the world, a specific country, a specific place, just kind of come in for the first time for a couple weeks, a few days. And like we talked about with the whole fixer situation, they're very influenced by that. They already have sort of their predis, they're already biased in various ways. They don't understand the language. Is that, do you think, one of the biggest barriers? Because there are so many languages in Ethiopia. I know people speak Amharic mostly, but there mm-hmm. are other languages as well. So what can you, I guess, say about the barriers that people might have with the issue of language? Well, I mean, even myself, when I was, um, when I went to my cadre in Chagni, I had, um, I had a, a thoroughly educated uh, translator, actually, when I went to Chagni. When I went to my cadre, I had two translators. Actually, um, and I was taking my recordings and sending them back to the States for uh, just a triple check verification. Um, Otherwise, I use a translator um, when I was working in the camps because there were several groups of people from the the Ago peoples, which are a a group underneath of the Amhara uh, ethnicity. So they spoke Ago. So I had an Amhara translator and an Ago translator. Um, So... um, I know I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that word, so everybody <laughs> forgive me for that. Um, but um, actually, uh, one of the uh, the families that I took to uh, a local doctor for medical treatment from Nairobi fly exposure, uh, they were agu. So I've got mom, her kids who are suffering with this condition. I've got the camp administrator who speaks agu, and then I've got the camp administrator or the my fixer who is uh, speaking Amharic. So it's just, you know, you just, you're thorough, you listen, you record, and you just go over it and you make sure you got it right. Um, what I've noticed ridiculously so is that a lot of these journalists are using Google Translate. I don't know, you should just play a game one day and look at how badly Google Translate translates Amharic. It's, it's, it's insane. And some people are actually trying to report credible news stories using that. And, and I, I just I just shake my head again. I just don't know. I mean, when I was coming up, um, if I had two captions wrong in a sentence, my editor would read me out. You know, and this is just for a simple photo caption. Um, you have people reporting full-fledged stories whose stories are just brutal, 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 brutal attempts at uh, 
God knows what. I, I just, you know, I, I try to keep my composure, but I, I just, I can't stand it. I really can't stand it. And it's just like, hire two fixers. I mean, hire <laughs> two translators. Respect right. the country enough to know um, that you need to really be sure of what people are saying. You know, and especially in a, a, a sensitive area like this, especially in a conflict like this. Yeah, that has you know? so many implications for an entire region of the world. Yeah. Um, I wanted I wanted to ask you if you have anything that you can tell us about what you understand about the issues. Well, two issues. There's the issue of looting, which I mean, is common in war. Like it mm-hmm. happens in every war. People, militias loot. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what you've seen around the issue of looting. And then on top of that, the issue of the presence of foreign fighters or what we might call mercenaries participating in this war. And I know there's people who you can maybe call foreign fighters from on both sides here. Like I know the Eritreans have been fighting with the Ethiopian federal forces, but I haven't seen any coverage of foreign fighters who may be fighting with the TPLF. So what can you tell us about that? Um, I have been hearing things now. See, I don't like to really necessarily repeat something until I've either seen it myself or verified it. But um, I keep seeing these pictures online with um, a soldier in blue, a, a blue kind of uniform um, with uh, Kevlar or with, um, with armor, um, who obviously is not Ethiopian. Uh, he is very much lighter skin. And mm-hmm. some people say he's Egyptian. I'm like, well, he doesn't even look Egyptian. He looks <laughs> European, you know? Oh, okay. Um, but um, I've heard this and I've been hearing this and Abiy Ahmed made a statement uh, a few weeks ago saying that they had recovered the bodies and captured foreign fighters um, in the fight for Dese and then actually in Wallo. Um, like I said, I, I honestly, my policy is I don't touch it unless I can prove it. You know, fair enough. Yeah. You know, but um, I've been hearing that for a long time. One of the things I will say, though, now that we're coming up on the anniversary of um, the real brutal massacre in um, Benishung Lagoons, is that um, I've had survivors of those medical massacres tell me about the involvement of Egypt and Sudan in supplying and coordinating the Gooms and the OLF in that region. Um, they've talked about the Benishung Lagoons fighters killing and warring in Metacol and Benishung Lagoons. Uh, if they're wounded, going back to their camps in Sudan and receiving free medical tra- treatment and uh, being allowed to heal and recover and go back into the fight in Ethiopia. And these camps are supplied and cared for and uh, funded by the Egyptian government. So well, that, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me considering. And again, if I'm just speculating here, I just the, considering the fact that the Egyptian government has said they were they would be willing to go to war over the issue of the Ethiopian dam. It wouldn't surprise me if they were playing some sort of role. Obviously, the TPLF has to be getting help from outside in some capacity. And then, of course, there's the role of Sudan which is still a bit murky as well, but you do have these refugee camps that are sprawling up in Sudan, uh, full of mostly people from Tigray. Um, And there seems to be a bit of a network, an activist network uh, there that's been involved in pushing certain stories and narratives as well, which reminds me of so many other wars uh, in the Middle Mm -hmm. East where, you know, neighboring countries become involved in different ways and refugee camps that sprawl up become the center of sort of planning uh, various operations. Uh, but what can you tell, I mean, do you, have you visited Sudan at all in the context of this war? 
No. Okay. No, no. I mean, if I can say, um, I, it's very interesting when I did the, the work in my cadre in Humera, um, there is a major military checkpoint, um, at the, the juncture because basically you're on the road to my cadre and it's a T you get to a T junction. My cadre is to the left and Humera is to the right. And it's basically like an armed, uh, or it's, it's like I said, it's a military checkpoint with tanks and what have you. And, um, the road to my cadre actually goes straight to Sudan. And, um, when I was there, I saw refugees flowing freely that passed their ID checks that were just leaving to go to Sudan. Um, when I get to my cadre, um, all of my interviewees tell me that after the killers had finished in Humera and my cadre, they either went back to Mikeli or they went to Sudan, to the refugee camps. And I remember early on when I started to see the pictures of these refugee camps um, after the uh, reporting on my cadre, the early local reporting, you see the pictures. If you go back and you see the, the pictures of the young men holding uh, their plates in front of their faces in the refugee camps in Sudan. And the reports were that there's a large number of young, able-bodied men who came into the refugee camps from, into, um, from Ethiopia who came without families. Um, or they say they were separated from their families. And these were actually the members of the Samri youth group and um, TPLF cadre who had escaped from the killing in my cadre in Humera and who basically placed themselves in Sudan amongst actual refugees um, and basically stayed there. I have accounts of people who fled from my cadre after the massacre who went to Sudan to the refugee camps and then were chased out of the refugee camps by the killers, people who had killed their friends and family um, who uh, were threatening them in the camps. So, um, and once again, thousands of Ethiopian voices echoed this before I got to my cadre and the Western, the Western media just, just shut it down, completely shut it down. Um, and I'll say that it was intentional because I'll go back to the, the very beginning, this picture of this tank that um, I haven't published it yet, but every other media outlet has published this tank outside of the, uh, the Dancha military base uh, that was destroyed. Um, it's on the road to my cadre in Humera. There's only one road into my cadre. So obviously people went to my cadre in Humera to do some type of reporting, but they chose a different narrative, you know? Wow. So what you're looking at is large numbers. And even Gatachu Retta, I think it was Gatachu Retta and uh, um, um, Deborah Sion alluded to the fact that we have 30,000 unarmed fighters in Sudan ready to join the fight. Then when wow. they got called on it, they said, no, we have 30,000. Uh, we have 30,000 unarmed patriots who are ready to join the fight. Um, so they just kind of played themselves with that. But then what also the Western media does not report is the two or three um, uh, incidences in um, Humera where there were columns of soldiers coming back into Ethiopia from Sudan that basically got taken out because they were basically trying to come in, dig up the we weapons that they had buried, and join the fight. 
So um, there's a lot that the Western media has left out that would completely. These are good stories too. These are like these are like pretty explosive stories. Like, why would you, as a journalist, why would you want to ignore that? Of course, unless you have some sort of like agenda, yeah, or stake in this war in some way. Because what you're talking about are stories that any journalist should want to jump on. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about the psychological warfare element here because. You know, the U.S. media a few weeks ago, we all saw was promoting this narrative about how the TPLF was just outside Addis when they were actually like 200 miles away, Three, which is yeah. 200, 200, 300 kilometers, I think it was. Yeah. But that's, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's, a, that's far. That yeah. is not close. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then you have the U.S. embassy like repeatedly warning Americans in Ethiopia to leave now, like making they've done it like several times, over a dozen times, I think, and making this bizarre comparison to Afghanistan saying, you know, we're not going to do a military style evacuation like in Afghanistan. And now you have this bizarre advisory that came out from the Federal Aviation Administration. And I actually want to read from from this uh, Washington Post article. I I know that you saw this where, okay, so they say the FAA advisory notes no reports of disruptions at the Bull International Airport and, quote, no indication of intent to civil aviation. Or I'm sorry, no indication of an an intent to threaten civil aviation. But it says the risk to approaching and departing planes could increase if the Tigray fighters encircle the capital. The Tigray fighters, quote, likely possess a variety of anti-aircraft capable weapons, including rocket-propelled grenades, anti-tank weapons, low-caliber anti-aircraft artillery, and man pads, which could reach up to 25,000 feet above ground. That's what the FAA advisory from the U.S. says. So, this kind of seemed to me like an attempt to attack the airline, the Ethiopian Airlines, which is like the most prestigious airline in Africa that CNN uh, tried to like get sanctioned with this really botched report about them supposedly transporting rep- weapons. And I also mm-hmm. found it kind of weird that like the F- the Federal Aviation Administration would warn that the TPLF might shoot down a commercial airliner when like the U.S. is essentially advocating for the TPLF, like, why are you supporting this group if they might shoot down a commercial airliner? But anyways, that's all to say, like, what's your take on the reason behind these dire warnings? Is there any truth here? Like, is Addis about to fall to the TPLF or is there something more happening? Um, Every report, um, mind you, I still have family in uh, Ethiopia and I have a lot of friends in Ethiopia. I have journalist friends, local journalist friends who are in Ethiopia and um, no According to them, Addis is not about to fall. No, Addis is not about to fall to the OLF Shenny, which is, I think, what people are trying to really stir up and play off of. Um, and actually, the reports that I'm getting is that uh, the TPLF are being battered in uh, that that approach, that I'll call it that kind of northeastern approach to Addis. Um, and uh, I, I'm just like kind of looking like, okay, well, this is so obviously now like, the most ridiculous propaganda. Um, I, I have to say that, uh, and I noticed this on my last flight, and I always just kind of take look, take take note of this. Um, for anybody who's not aware, most of the approaches to Addis Ababa have you flying over Tigray. Mm-hmm. I mean, you actually, if I remember the map correctly, you pass over Aksum, um, you pass over Eritrea, and you pass over Tigray. You pass over Aksum on approach to um, uh, uh, Addis Ababa when you're flying from Europe, actually when you're flying from anywhere west, it's, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. that northern approach. 
And even when you're coming in from Dubai, you kind of do uh, a, a similar um, a similar path where you fly over another part of Tigray closer to Mikeli. So man pads and, you know, these, these kind of warnings are just like, okay, <laughs> all right, this, you know, I, I don't know. This is like becoming a clown show now. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just like, one of the things that this, this, all of this propaganda is meant to do is take advantage of the people who don't have any awareness of the region or the situation on the ground. So it's meant mm-hmm. to just scare the bejeebies out of people. So then now what are you going to do? You're going to have a walkout um, from Lufthansa because these pilots don't want to fly into the region. You're going to have a, you, right. know, I, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so it's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's completely embarrassing. I was commenting to a colleague of mine yesterday on Capitol Hill, like I'm watching people's credibility and careers like go up in flames because they have basically, they're repeating TPLF propaganda. The TPLF has a habit of projecting the most ridiculous propaganda, the most sensational propaganda. And then because we've taken this posture with Africa in the West, where we really don't know Africa anymore, if we ever knew it at all, so we're just believing everything that TPLF said. So it's just like, um, you know, some of those early pieces that came out about the war. I mean, I cringed and I, I wrote to a couple of media organizations that I knew that were doing the most egregious reporting. I'm just like, no, this is not the situation. And they ignored me. So um, uh, at this stage, I'm just like, I read it and I'm just like, <laughs> Throwing okay, your arms whatever. up in the air, like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I want, it's, I, I want to ta- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's just, just bad. It's just bad. It's intentional. They're trying to crush Ethiopia any way they can financially. They're trying to crush the reputation of Ethiopian airlines. Um, But what they're doing is underestimating African resolve and Eastern resolve. They're underestimating the rest of the globe's resolve to, to, to actually see through this conflict and see through the propaganda and support Ethiopia. Yeah, especially the surrounding countries. Like, I think they thought Kenya would get on board and Kenya hasn't gotten on board. And mm-hmm. um, anyways, the, I, I wanted to ask about another aspect of this, which is the situation with the UN. Um, I don't know how much you know about the UN staffers, but we all know, you know, the Ethiopian government has repeatedly expressed frustration with what they say is a biased UN staff and they've expelled some senior UN staffers. So from your time reporting in Ethiopia, I'm not sure if you've interacted with people in the UN, but do you see the UN as behaving in a biased way? And if so, why do you think that is? Uh, well, you know, forgive me for being long-winded about this. Um, Please. Uh, I've been, I've had my UN credential for almost 13 years now. And oh. um, the uh, protocol for a journalist who wants to cover um, any UN activities in a region is to reach out to that particular region and uh, request access. So when I wanted to cover something UN related in South Africa, I'll call um, or I'll write to um, Malu um, Media Relations and they'll connect me with the person in that region and I write to that person and they say, sure, come on down and do X, Y, and Z, you know? Um, And this is just standard. So when I went to McKelly, I wrote to my person, my contact at the UN, they're like, great to hear from you, you know, haven't seen you in a while. Um, here's who you want to contact in regards to UNHCR operations in McKelly. Um, she gave me five names and we were all CC'd on the same email. Um, one person who I tried to reach out to before she responded, here's the person you want to contact about McKelly. I wrote to this person 
three times. Um, I texted him. And um, finally, I get an email from him. And we have this exchange. And he's basically like, well, there's no UNHCR operations in McKelly. Um, I work for OCHA. And, you know, I will talk to my colleagues and see if they want to accept your offer for coverage of our humanitarian efforts in McKelly. And I'm like, well, this is not an offer. This is just, mm -hmm. this is standard. It's like you're doing something to help the people of McKelly, the people of Tigray. The world needs to know what you're doing to help the people of Tigray. And right. never heard from this guy again. Um, same thing. Um, I chucked it up to, okay, whatever. All right. Um, I came back to the Amhara region a couple months later. I reached out to my UN contact person again. She was like, okay, well, here's the same person. I'm like, this guy didn't really want to help me in McKelly. She was like, really? Why not? I, I thought they'd want media coverage. And I'm just like, no, they didn't. So um, when I'm in McKelly, the day after that initial conversation, I go to an IDP camp and what do I see? A big UNHCR tent, um, basically like about half a mile from my hotel within this IDP camp. Um, all of that to say is there has been a long, long known fact, long standing fact that a lot of the Ethiopians that you see working in the UN structure are Tigrayan and TPLF loyalist, you know? Mm -hmm. So like when you go to the campus in Addis Ababa, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's all Tigrayan, but it's all Tigrayan for the most part, um, from the guards to everybody you interact with in every department. So, um, you know, it's just like they run it. Yeah. And um, I think all of the, the, the whistleblower feedback and everything that you've mm -hmm. heard from people who have come out, it's like, you know, once again, these people were put in place to control the narrative, to control the, uh, the resources and access for the TPLF you know, for a hundred years, as Mellis put mm -hmm. it, you know? So, um, yeah, there is a problem. There is a problem. I mean, I, I probably won't have a UN credential after this, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, it well, is what it is, you know? I mean, that makes perfect sense. And like, you're not going to be in power for 30 years and not try to dominate everything like that. It actually, you know, it would, it would be weird if they hadn't done that, I suppose, given how they operated when they were in charge. I wanted to ask you about the issue of aid, um, which is kind of, you know, tangential to, to what you were talking about. You know, despite all this evidence, right, about aid trucks going missing at the hands of the TPLF, uh, the TPLF looting USAID warehouses, which the USAID came out and said happened, um, of aid organizations noting that the fighting is the primary obstacle to delivering aid. The media is still saying in almost every single article that I read about the war in Ethiopia, you still see this blame placed on the Ethiopian government for blockading Tigray, for blocking aid across the country, across various regions. So what do you see as the primary obstacle to the movement of humanitarian aid? The TPLF. That's it. That's Simple. exactly it. You know, it's just a TPLF. And... Um, you know, it's almost to the point where um, I just want to stop reading people's publications. I canceled my subscription to uh, the Times. Um, wow. <laughs> and um, I mean, I know it's, it says, you know, that 20 bucks a month is not going to prove anything. Um, but I, I just, I, I'm done. I'm so done because, you know, I've lived there 
I've experienced, you know, both regimes, um, and I've been able to see through everything that's happened. Um, and then to see people come in and make, you know, the most elementary mistakes, um, has just convinced me that it's not accidental anymore. It's intentional. This is, yeah. as I've called it, you know, this is 21st century Patrice Lumumba style effort to regime, you know, change regime, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just that you, you're not openly, you know, taking part in somebody's assassination per se. Um, but it, it's intentional. Um, the TPLF is blocking aid. The TPLF is the reason why there's no aid getting through. I will say that uh, on the contrary, all of these humanitarian aid organizations are looking at over a million IDPs in Amhara and Afar. And every time, every camp I've gone to, I've only seen local charities and local players in the Orthodox church feeding people. I've, I haven't seen USAID in any of the camps I've been to. I haven't seen Catholic relief charities in any of the camps I've been to. I haven't seen IRC in any of the camps I've been to. I haven't seen any of that. You know, I haven't seen any of that. And I, I basically can go to a point to every camp and say, you know, okay, these stacks of wheat flour came from the Amhara emergency fund. These mattresses on the ground for these pregnant women who are confined 28 to a room, they came from the Amhara emergency fund, you know, or they came from the Orthodox church, you know, but you see of how many, how many NGOs do we see active in Tigray? You know? Like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much their primary concern yeah. is Tigray, Tigray, Tigray. And you actually don't hear it all about these other places. That's shocking that they're not even servicing or doing anything to help people in these other areas. And it's not like it's just a few thousand people. It's a significant number of people, as you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about, you know, the general sentiment about the conflict on the ground. Obviously, Ethiopians are not a monolith, but it does seem like, you know, in the U.S. media narrative, you get this idea that the Ethiopian government's evil needs to go because they're committing genocide, and everyone pretty much agrees with that. But the images of rallies that you see in Ethiopia suggest something very different. Um, and of course, you know, the Ethiopian diaspora, especially in the U.S., has been very vocal about where they stand. So what is your perception of how Ethiopians generally feel about this conflict? Uh, let me try to frame it this way. Um, um, irregardless of some of our political thoughts um, in the U.S. as a New Yorker, um, I woke up on September 12th, uh, 2001, with a certain feeling. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just like, I, I can't curse. I'm sorry. I won't curse. <laughs> so this is a family show. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, when the dust settled um, a month later, I'd lost uh, seven firefighters from the Bowery Firehouse around the corner from my job uh, wow. to uh, one friend and one of my former employees who worked at the company I worked at, who was just identified by the DNA material in his high school ring, crushed high school ring. That's the only thing they found of him. So, you know, we all had a sense of resolve. With mm -hmm. the Western media um, continues to basically screw up with is the fact that every Ethiopian knows about the Northern Command attacks, the five bases, not one base, but the five bases. Uh, they also know that my cadre was a part of this. My cadre was, you know, this planned ethnic cleansing was a part of this military campaign, campaign, which was ultimately a coup attempt. Um, they also know about the sleeper cells. They also are 
you know, survivors of the 27-year rule of the TPLF. So basically, people are fighting for their lives, you know, against a force that basically has always wanted to kind of dominate and or destroy parts of the country. And they're just like, they're reacting to that, you know? Yeah. So when you see, like, I was really furious um, on uh, November 3rd, actually November 4th, because I saw somebody take a photo from AFP and saying, Ethiopians rally, you know, to honor the start of the war. I'm like, no assholes. These people are, are <laughs> memorializing the, the deaths of thousands of soldiers in Ethiopia in the Northern Command. And yeah. because they, they stick with this narrative of Abi went in on November 4th to start the war. No, Abi responded to an attack on November 3rd where people had their throats slit in their sleep. You know? So it's not that difficult to understand. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it's that, that like this um, horror nationalism kind of thing. And I'm just like, you guys are, um, once again, I can't curse. I mean, you guys are just ridiculous. You're really ridiculous. And it's painful. And that's why I believe now it's intentional, completely intentional. I want to ask you about, I just have a couple more questions here, and I do appreciate your time. Um, but I do want to ask you about the issue of the Oromo Liberation Army. Um, you don't have to go like into too much detail, but there's been some, you know, uh, attempt in the media to play this as like, oh, now the TPLF has been joined by this other group and they're going to join together out of like solidarity to take down this big, bad, you know, government. What's actually the case of what's happening here? Uh, because I know the Oromo issue is separate from the, from the Tigrayan issue, but at the same time, you know, they have joined forces. Well, the original plan, um, the way it was explained to me, the original plan of November 4th was that the TPLF would attack from the north and the Aroma oh. Liberation Army in front, or front, or I just call them front, would mm -hmm. attack from the south. And they basically would topple the government um, and then reinstate the TPLF. Um, the relationship between the OLF and the TPLF um, is has been murky. People have recounted to me that the TPLF have basically sought to use the OLF but they don't respect the OLF. Um, they're just like, you know, pawns to them. So, um, and I'm not going to really speak on it heavily because I'm just not really that sure beyond, Fair enough. <laughs> you know, just exactly what it, what, what has transpired before me. Um, but yeah, these guys, um, I don't know about the depth of that relationship. I know that people are concerned about the OLF because mm -hmm. They have uh, amassed arms. Um, they do have some capacity to wage war, um, but they're infuriated by the OLF at the same time because the OLF so far has just been massacring women and children. When we talk about the atrocities in Ataye and um, other parts of the uh, Oromia region towards Amhara, it's basically been psychological, like the most brutal psychological warfare and acts and atrocities that you could imagine, um, specifically targeting children, specifically targeting women, um, things, you know, uh, game, playing games by seeing how many strikes to the head before you can see a child's brains come out of its Jesus. head. You know, oh, wow. this, is, this is the OLF trademark. And in terms of the OLF in regards to how they've uh, worked with the, Beni, the, the Gooms and Beni Shungle, um, 
the the the, the acts of cannibalism by the gooms, uh, the atrocities of um, um, basically dissecting people and eating their livers. You know. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, people have thought that that's too fantastic, but the witnesses that I interviewed in Chagney that escaped from medical, medical and um, the region, they just basically talked about how, you know, some women couldn't bury their husbands because all they had were just pieces, you know, because their bodies had been uh, so brutally dismembered and, uh, and um, just, you know, parts of it eaten, parts of it was whatever, you know? It's just like shocking that this is that this kind of this is what happens when there's a war and there's so many people who are cheering it on. And that makes it even more disgusting that there are people who are cheering it on. Um, I, I just you know, I don't think you have an answer to this. I don't think anyone does because we don't really know. But U.S. policy on this situation has been so chaotic and ridiculous and one sided, but also confused I'm just curious, you know, from your vantage point, what is happening here? Why do you think the U.S. is being so one-sided and is really helping to encourage this conflict to continue with with their actions? Uh, lapdog politics. Um, the TPLF were basically their lapdogs in the Horn of Africa. Um, I've even read a statement where Samantha Power said that uh, – Oh, things were so peaceful and calm and, and they work so well <laughs> under the TPLF. And I'm like, yeah, while the TPLF, you know, sterilized 54,000 Amhara women, while the TPLF disappeared oh. two, 2 million Amhara, which are still missing. You know, before the war, I mean, we were finding effectively, and I'll say we as a society, I'm not Ethiopian, um, but we were finding mass graves in Walkite where they had been disappearing people for years and the crimes were just being discovered. And this was before my contra. Um, kind of similar to like how in South Africa, every now and then you'll find somebody's body way out in the countryside that the police disappeared, you know, but this is just on a larger scale. Um, so, you know, the U.S. has just wanted somebody in place that they could trust. You know, the, there's the whole China issue and countering China's advances in the region. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, I kind of, I'm, I'm curious to see how it's going to play out, but you know that, you know, Russia and Ethiopia religiously had a relationship that goes back centuries because, you know, Russian Orthodox priests used to train in Ethiopia or study in Ethiopia as what, you know, towards, uh, as a work towards becoming priests. Um, I'd be curious to see how that, you know, plays out in any way, shape, or form. I'm not saying it will. Um, mm -hmm. But U.S. foreign policy has always been about command and control. You know, put a lapdog in place. He controls the region. We prop him up. And that's that. Um, there are other uh, kind of issues that people just have with Ethiopia psychologically. It's like it's never been colonized. I kind of got the feeling that uh, people are just tired of hearing that. You know, these people are so proud. They've never been colonized. So we need to give them, we need to show them a good lesson. We got to colonize them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. To really show them who's boss. Jeez. Yeah. And then there's this, this other thing where, and this is, this is another, you know, another tangent, another conversation. Why is the oldest Christian nation on the planet subject for all of your missionaries? You know, mm. it's like, there have been times I've been on a flight with like 30 or 40 missionaries going to Ethiopia, 
none of whom speak Amharic, none of whom know, I mean, know linguistics well enough to translate a Bible from English into Oromifa or Amharic or Tigrinya, you know, but they're going there to convert the oldest Christian nation people to, to Jesus Christ, you know, and I'm just like, I, I, it's just, I, I don't get it. There, there's so many layers to this intervention and U.S. posture towards Ethiopia. It's, it's mind boggling, you know? Yeah. What do you think, Jamal, like, I guess to end on, what do you think that those who are watching, particularly Americans, need to understand about this conflict if there's one or two things they take away from this conversation? They need to understand that the regime that ruled Ethiopia for 27 years was a brutal, authoritarian, repressive regime that utilized U.S. support to basically control its own people. Um, we know Agazi snipers were trained by U.S. gunnies. Um, those snipers were crucial in the, the crackdowns that occurred in um, Aromia and more particularly in Amhara in, uh, during the 2016-2017 protest. Um, we've utilized that aid. I mean, there's a picture. Uh, somebody I interviewed showed me uh, a, a picture or talked to me about a picture, excuse me, in the Martyrs Museum in Tigray of a woman, a Caucasian woman, giving over 20 SUVs to the TPLF um, just as a gift. Um, we have, the U.S. has had this relationship with the TPLF. Uh, the U.S. wants to continue this lapdog relationship and they're doing their best to prop up this regime that basically was a terror to the whole population of Ethiopia. And well said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could go on, but I know we have time constraints. <laughs> well, I guess the, the last thing I would, would want to ask you is where can people follow your excellent work? Um... I have, I, I utilize two Instagram pages, but primarily Jamal Countess Photography on Instagram uh, and Jamal Countess. Um, I do contract work for uh, Getty Images and Redux Pictures um, and um, I'm on Twitter. So. Thank you so much, Jamal, for coming on and breaking all this down for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.